As a reminder, this semester we are working through biblical hermeneutics. Uh, the word hermeneutics essentially just means how we understand things or interpret things. And therefore, biblical hermeneutics is related to how we understand things of the Bible. So what is hermeneutics? Hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics is the art and the science of interpreting or studying the Bible. Do a little bit of review, uh, and if you weren't here, you can still take a stab at this. Uh, But what type of pre-commitments, last week we talked about five of them, but they all uh, are pretty related. So what type of pre-commitments do you need to have when studying the Bible? What what should you be committed to in advance of actually studying the Bible? Obey. Okay. Should be the position of the believer uh, that what God says through the Bible, we plan on not just reading, but doing something with it. And what else? Jacob. It's without error. Okay, that it is without error. Okay, we live by it, uh, obey it, apply it. Um, the, the rationale I shared last week is if you're going to study a book that you believe has error, there's no point in studying the book. Unless you're just going to study where you decide you think that the errors are. Um, there's no point in doing extensive work to study something that you believe is flawed or can be, uh, not only would I say, uh, let me add another one. I think not only that the Bible is without error, but the Bible is authoritative. Because there's no other point in studying it. If it's not authoritative, there's no point in devoting yourself to it. If, it's with, if it has error and you don't know where those errors are, um, or cannot know with certainty where the errors are, then it's a pointless study. It's a futile task. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Okay. Any other pre-commitments that come to mind? Go ahead. Uh, it's God's words. Yep. God's words. That it is from God as his words. I gave one more I think that's helpful for this week, and it's a willingness to be confined to the author's intent. And that's going to be important, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in a few minutes. Okay? Uh, as a reminder, why do we need translations of the Bible? Because we don't speak Hebrew. Because we don't speak Hebrew. less biblical timeline Hebrew. Okay. Why else? Not only do we not speak Hebrew, we don't speak Aramaic, Aramaic, which portions of Daniel and Ezra are written in. Why else? Don't you think, though, that also as languages evolve and and we change a little bit, we need to be able to interpret what it really means with what we know today? Mm -hmm. We need language that is meaningful to us today. Um, I I would add that we don't speak Greek, and even those that speak Greek today, to go to your point, do not speak the same type of Greek that the New Testament was written in. So it's still Greek to them. Multiple levels of pun there. All right, so we need translations because we don't speak the language. And we talked a little bit uh, about differences in literal translation philosophy and functional translation philosophy. 
what are, does anybody remember what the difference in literal versus functional translation philosophy? Anybody other than Jacob know that one? We talked about it last week. You may not remember which one is which. Wouldn't literal be exactly what it says? Pretty much, Tom. Literal is try to be word for word. Yes. Whereas functional, you try to convey the thought. Right. And we used the example last week of how word for word is often really good for studying, but thought for thought is sometimes better for situations. I used the example last week that when Izzy was a toddler, Lily said, it's raining cats and dogs, and she went running to the front yard or running to the front window to see how many cats and dogs were falling out of the sky. And she had not understood and translated that phrase so also, sometimes we need to translate a phrase to have meaning in a way that we can understand it, as opposed to words to have meaning. So in every translation philosophy, there is some balance, actually, between word for word, literal, one word translated from Greek or Hebrew into English and the next. And there's some stuff there. But by and large, when we look at our different types of translation philosophies, we have a literal that tries to keep it as culture-bound to the original culture as possible, using word-for-word word and not putting things into modern terminology. So the example I believe I shared last week is we would talk, for maybe in the Old Testament, it would talk about Babylon as a city of sin, a really modern paraphrase that would take thought for thought might for the American context instead of saying they went to the city of sin Babylon they might say they went to the city of sin Vegas because it's making an attempt to modernize with the thought to the modern audience as opposed to convey what was historical in that sense Babylon okay uh, I'm just making a passage to the Bible, but trying to give an example there of a thought for thought or even going further than a thought for thought, a paraphrase. Okay, so last week, I, I believe I ended by basically saying, giving you a chart of uh, different translations upon the continuum of word for word literal to more functional translations and even a few that are beyond a, a functional translation to a, just a true paraphrase. Um, I would say that the message is a paraphrase, not even trying to keep anything from the original culture in the original culture. Um, something like the NIV tends to be a functional translation, very easy to read. A lot of the, the phrases are put into concepts for us um, as opposed to words for us, word for word. Uh, the ESV, the NASB tend to be more thought for thought, uh, or not thought for thought, word for word, literal translation. So those, that's kind of the differences. There's values to all sorts of those. I find value even in paraphrases, but I'm not going to preach from one. I'm not going to a paraphrase and looking at that, and I'm not even calling a paraphrase a Bible. I see it as a commentary by somebody on the Bible. Um, I see it as a valuable thing, but I see it as a commentary on the Bible, not a Bible itself, because it's somebody's theology and their paraphrase of removing the original context. So um, I gave you that. I showed you some of the ways in which we get our modern translations uh, from different veins and that type of thing. And that was kind of a recap of last week. So this week, I want to use some key terms. Some of these terms are things that you will see later. Some of them I'll use tonight. Um, but I want to just give these now. 
Um, there's two, by and large, different types of Bible study. There's deductive and inductive Bible study. A deductive Bible study often normally starts with a topic and finds material to support that topic. It moves from, it deduces from the general to the specific. So, for example, a deductive Bible study could be done on God's love, looking at all the passages that talk about God's love. There's some value to doing that, but it doesn't teach you the same thing as reading a passage that describes God's love in its context and its original situation. When you read a, a, a series of passages on God's love, if maybe you do a concordance search or something like that, um, and you type in God's love or the love of God, it gives you all these passages in them, but it doesn't always help you understand the strength of God's love in that situation because you don't understand the, the condemnation that we exist under. It may not be highlighted in the verse or two verses around it, but in the argument it is. <coughs> And it can be dangerous because we can misunderstand what's happening. But there is some value to it. It also keeps you from reading and studying the entirety of the Bible before you realize what God's love is. Okay? So if you had to study every passage and verse and practice the method that we're going to give today to then understand what God's love is, eh, it might take you a couple of years or decades to understand that. So there's some value in deductive Bible study, but it's dangerous. Inductive Bible study, as opposed to starting with a topic, typically starts with a text. It examines it carefully before moving towards the general. It moves from the specific towards the pattern or the principle in the general. Steps are often of the inductive Bible study method are often observation, interpretation, and application. Another word that you will hear uh, tossed around in biblical hermeneutics, uh, what we often want to avoid in biblical hermeneutics is eisegesis. Okay? That means to lead into or inject your idea into the text. That is somebody that has uh, written uh, Philippians 4.13, has a, has a tattoo of that, and you ask them what Paul's talking about there, and they're like, huh, who's Paul? Um, I got this Bible verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I scored a touchdown uh, one time where I knew God would help me get a touchdown. I found a verse and I wanted to score a touchdown, so I said I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The Bible says I can score a touchdown because God strengthens me. Reading into the text. Right? Now, can God allow us to score touchdowns? Yes. But is that what that verse is saying? Eh, not directly. Exegesis means to lead out of or read from. So, for example, Philippians 4.13, when we actually read it and understand it in its context, Paul is saying that he knows how to endure persecution, the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of those things according to the power of Christ that strengthens him to endure all situations, not to dunk a basketball, make a million dollars, or score a touchdown, okay? There's a situation involved, and we want to read out from that situation, first of all. So exegesis starts with trying to understand and move from what is said in the text into our world instead of, I want to read into this text to find that I can do what I want to do. Okay? Often a matter of motive, but not always a matter of motive. Sometimes our motives are really good, and yet we can be guilty of reading into a text 
something that God has not said. We need to read out of a text, not into a text. But that's hard. And we'll talk about that in probably six or seven weeks. We talk about interpretive challenges um, and what we as readers bring to the text because we don't bring their culture. We bring our desires to a text. We have some things that we want the Bible to say. Um, We have some things that we think the Bible says. So we'll talk about that in a few weeks. So there's the key terms. I'm not going to use them a lot tonight. I think you'll see them more often um, used throughout the course, but that's why if you see it, you got it. So I want to talk about the interpretive process, not just key terms, but what is the interpretation? How do we interpret things? What's the process? Okay. I'm going to tell you that the first thing, and this flies in the face of some things that were generated in the 20th century, is that we should actually care about what the author says and what the author meant. That what the author meant is actually important. I want you to think of a situation, you maybe can do this on your own, but maybe it was with a family member, a spouse, a child, a boss, When they said something to you and you understood it wrongly. Or from your perspective, you understood it the only reasonable way to understand it and they should have said it differently. Okay? We've probably all had that occur at some point when somebody else said something to us, we understood it, And we came back and said, but what you said was, and they're like, but that's not what I meant. To some degree, with our current uh, move towards membership agreements, I, as your pastor, along with your pastoral staff and your church council, looked at it and said, hey, let's move to membership agreements because we want to be the type of church that says, when you join our church, if you start missing, we care about you. We think that if you become part of the flock here, and you abandon the flock by no longer attending worship, that we need to be the type of the church that says, we'll go after the one that starts leaving. And in the pro- that's been my intention and all along in this whole membership agreement. It's let's figure out who the people are that we're losing, that we're part of this. Let's go find them. We've got a bunch of people that are on board with everything we're doing, but what about those ones that were, thought this was going to be their church home and they've disappeared? They're important. And they're important enough that we should create a system year after year to where we have to follow up with them. Because when people become part of our church, we need to be the type of church that says you care so much, we care so much about you, and you matter so much to God through our care that we're going to come after you. But not everybody's understood it that way. There's been a few people that misunderstood I and your staff and your church council's uh, desires and intentions and thought, wait a minute, are you trying to get us to commit more for the life of our church? Do you not believe that we, the 99 that are inside the fold, are actually doing all the right things? And I'm saying, no, 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 that's not at all what we mean. Our authorial intent in that drafting and that change is not to question the commitment of our people that are here every week and have been here for decade after decade, giving and serving faithfully, No, our authorial intent in that was actually to go after and say, we need to be a people that go after those that begin to leave. And it's hard when somebody doesn't hear your authorial intent, your your intent, and misunderstand your intention. We've all had that. Today, I found an example of a man who was evidently away from his wife on a business trip. He came from a Hispanic culture. They were newly married, much like 
Uh, some newly married couples, good. He went to say goodnight, and he texted her, and he said, goodnight, Linda, okay? And her name was Jessica, not Linda, to which she said, uh, what's going on here? And he had to explain to her that his authorial intent was the mixing of his Spanish and English and that Linda in Spanish means beautiful, and he was intending to say goodnight, beautiful. She misunderstood utterly the author's intent, and it resulted in a need for discussion. It should be our commitment to understand what the author intended in their culture, not ours. Now, in that case, it would have been really wise for him to understand she didn't come from the same culture because they're communicating at the same time. When Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he did not know American culture. I know that we as Americans think we're the center of the world, but Paul was not thinking about American culture. So this Sunday, when I preach on Romans 6, 15 through 23, Paul did not have in mind all that has occurred in American culture in the last several hundred years, particularly the last couple of years, regarding discussions on slavery and the horrors of it. So when Paul uses terminology about being a slave of God, he did not have the baggage of American slavery in mind. So we, reading his works 2,000 years later, don't need to understand what Paul meant according to the lens of American slave trade, but through his lens. It is upon us to understand what the original author wrote in their culture not for us to expect them to communicate it to us in ours. That makes it hard. Okay? The author's intention is often seen in context. So, for example, I'm going to use the same phrase four times, and I want you to tell me what it means. But I'm going to tell you who says it. Okay? I'm going to use the phrase, it was a ball. If an umpire says it, what does that mean? was not a strike, okay? It was a ball said by somebody that watched something hit a window. What do they mean? The ball hit the window. The ball hit a window. A round thing hit a window, okay? It was a ball said by someone with dancing shoes on. It was a party. It was a party, okay? It was a ball said by a teenager with a smile on their face. It was fun. It was fun. The same phrase said in four different situations in our world has four different authorial intentions often seen by the context. Not entirely seen by the context, but by and large seen by the context. So, context often helps us understand meaning. In fact, in many cases, context determines meaning, but your context today doesn't mean, doesn't determine what I meant. Okay? So the way that you hear something doesn't determine what I meant. Some of you have had that discussion with your spouse before. But I heard, I thought what you meant was no. And most of the time, what they come back and say is, that's not what I said. And you're like, boy, what you said could have been taken this way. 
Context determines meaning, but your context and how you hear it doesn't determine what I meant when I said it. So to understand the author's intention is pivotal for the interpretive journey, whether that's understanding what your boss says to you, whether that's understanding what your coworker says to you, whether that's understanding what your spouse says to you, your child says to you, or God says to you through the authors of Scripture. We need to understand the author's intention, and when we understand the author's intention, I'm going to present that we actually can understand the divine intention because God's intention is not different than the human author's intention in the pages of Scripture. Men moved by God wrote the Scriptures. So when we understand the author's intention, we understand God's intention. I'm going to use a couple of examples here from Duvall and Hayes' book, uh, Grasping God's Word. And uh, what's the other one, Jacob? What's the shorter one? Journey. Yeah, I recommend it later. Where is it at? Yep, Journey into God's Word. That's the shorter version. All right, Duvall and Hayes, they use this concept of crossing a river. Okay? They, they talk about how yeah, to originally we need to picture the original context. So let's use Romans. Right now I'm preaching through Romans. Let's talk about Romans. Okay? When Paul's writing to the Romans, he wasn't in Rome. But for now, you can picture Rome a little bit, 2,000 years ago. Okay? The, the city is not filled with skyscrapers. Okay? It doesn't, it's not skyscrapers. It's not modern mass transit. There's no airplanes. It looks differently. Picture some ruins maybe now, but you know, put yourself back best you can. Okay? On one hand, you have this, and you have old Rome 2,000 years ago that he's writing to. You have people gathering without electricity, without microphones, all of those things, early church persecution, Roman Empire in charge, okay, all of those things. Today, sitting in this room, we don't have any of those. We have modern cities, electricity, different Bible study methods, different language, all of those things. He talks about how for us to move, we need to understand the author's intent, but the problem is, not only do we need to understand the author's intent, but we need to be able to move from what the author intended to application in our life. And for us to move from what the author intended to a people way back then to what we should be understanding about God and obeying now requires that we cross a river. And crossing a river is not a simple thing in today's culture. It's not a simple thing to get to the other side of the Chesapeake, right? You got to cross the Bay Bridge and pay the tolls, and there's only like one bridge to ever get across. And when traffic backs up, it's never good. Crossing a bridge is a, mo- is a modern problem that's an old problem too, right? Crossing the bridge from what the author said to people back then to what God intends for us to understand and obey today is difficult. And it's difficult because of the width of the river. And he describes a variety of things that make that river bigger or smaller in different situations. What are some of the things that make the river difficult to cross? What are the differences between then and now, given the electricity and those types of examples? But what are the things that we could, by and large, say exist in this river that we've got to cross over the gap of? What are those things? What could you... C is the, that separate, the river that separates today from 2,000 years ago in the church at Rome. Did they have bridges at all? Yeah, well, they would have found a way to, make a, to get a bridge, yeah. Um, 
Okay? But what are the things that comprise the river? For example, one of them being language. We've, we've already talked about why we have translations. There's a language barrier. That, that's a pretty significant river to cross, but we have translations, so that helps us with that. What other things are in that river? You also mentioned one, when you asked the question, um, is time itself, you said mm -hmm. thousands of years ago. Mm -hmm. So just the time. Yeah. All of us in the room are old enough at this point to say, back when I was in school, it wasn't that way. Even Jacob is old enough to say, back when I was in school, things didn't go this way. We didn't get snow days because there was a threat of snow, right? Which is another situation that can hint at the next aspect that happens to be in that river. What else? Time. But what else? Experiences. Experiences, yeah. Interacting with the you always have the same language. Okay. And if they were slaves to somebody, they probably were treated well as they right. were. If they were different opportunities across the class, uh, the class divide, the experiences. So, for example, when we we talk about our policy around the office of being open, not being open, following the OPM guidelines, you've got Jacob on one hand who's like, "Oh, snow! I've been driving in this thing since I started driving." Like, and then you've got others of us. It's like, wait a minute. There's like snow, there's a potential for that. I could die if I drove in this stuff, right? Because there's limited experience in it. So a person's experience, which by and large is a product of their culture, um, growing up in Wisconsin versus growing up in South Carolina, there's a little difference in culture there, right? Not just a difference in time. So when we think about the river, it's separated by time, it's separated by culture, it's separated by language, Customs, what else? Anything else that comes to mind? There's a couple other things you should put in there. Well, if we're talking about interpreting an Old Testament passage, mm -hmm. uh, pre or post and pre yeah. Christ. Even with, even with God's people, we have a different expectation when we look at the New Testament believers in the early church and the Old Testament saints. Abraham worshipped vastly differently than did David, than did Paul, than did Timothy. And yet all worshipped the same Lord. And when we look at passages that relate, we relate, we need to understand the interpretive journey. Crossing a bridge looks different. The river looks a little bit different. When we're reading, moving from the bridge across from Genesis chapter 12, or Genesis 22 into David's life and into Paul's life and into the New Testament church. I okay. think that's most of them um, that come to mind. You could put a few other things in there. But it, you just need to see that there's a bridge that needs to be done, that the, the, the depth of the river and the, the complexities of it uh, change in various situations. It's not always the same. It's, I mean, time is fairly relative. All of it, at this point, is pretty old to us. Okay? Culture, all of it's different, but it's vastly different when he writes to Roman believers and when he writes uh, the letter to Philemon versus uh, the book of Ruth. Mm -hmm. Hate and antagonism, why? You know, no one has ever, it's never been clear to me if we've been reading you know, all his songs. And it just, it, it's so much 
going on about how you've been treated, mistreated, and how you, all that, but it doesn't ever explain why. Yeah. In David's life, you've got challenges with understanding his situation, seeing the good of it, the challenges of it, all of that. So, all right. Uh, Duvall and Hayes talk about let's cross the river, and they talk about taking a principal bridge, and I'll give that in a few minutes. Um, but they also give some bad approaches to studying the Bible. Okay. They say that some people look at a passage. Uh, let's go ahead and navigate to Matthew 14, 29. Let's use this verse. Okay, Matthew 14, 29. When Peter gets to walk on water. Now remember, Jesus is walking across the water. The disciples see something happening on the water. They're terrified. They say it's a ghost. Jesus responds, take heart, it's I, don't be afraid. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, command me to go to come to you out on the water. Jesus says, Come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. Right? So those that take an intuitive approach to the Bible, whenever they're doing their Bible study, say, hey, if it just feels right, if it makes sense to me, I just apply things directly. So they might look at this passage and go just directly after it. And they're like, oh, okay, Matthew 14, 29, come. Meaning get out of the boat and walk on the water. Okay, very literal here. Next time I'm on a boat, just going for that walking on water thing. Right? They might take that passage. Most are not going to take a intuitive, literal, go-after-it approach with that verse. They do so with the other verses to their peril as well. Right? But most are going to take the spiritualized approach because they're going to say, you know what, I really don't think that this verse just means I should walk on water. For most people, that doesn't work well. So since it doesn't work well for most people, what this passage really means is that I need to step out in my faith. And I need to step out on my faith and show to others and to myself that God works in my life and takes care of me. That sounds a lot more spiritual and a lot more like what this passage is supposed to be about. Some of you may have heard some sermons about it. And there's probably some potential in the past that I have shared something similar uh, to that, that you need to get out of the boat and trust in Jesus and have some faith, okay? Let's think about the context of the book of Matthew, though, okay? Matthew's writing about Jesus' life and ministry. What was the disciples' original concern here? What were the disciples wondering in that text? Were they wondering if they could walk on water? No. What would happen? In the boat, they were wondering a little bit what would happen. But more than that, Peter wasn't sitting in the boat that night seeing a ghost and saying, huh, I wonder if I can do that. They were wondering if it was actually Jesus. Their concern is, who is this guy and what is he doing here? Not what happens if I follow him by faith. Right? Now, that we do see some sinking that happens when they take their eyes off and begin to worry. But I don't think that Matthew 14 is written to tell us, first and foremost, to get out of the boat 
and make big steps of faith towards Jesus, keeping your eye on him so that you can do whatever that walking on the water looks like for you. Ultimately, I believe that the big thing that's going on here is the testimony of the book of Matthew that's going to be answered that, that Peter's going to say, you are the Lord and the Christ. Peter's coming around to this whole like, Jesus is Christ. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter's looking at Jesus walking across the water and saying, what's going on there? Who are you? And Jesus says, yeah, not only can I do things, but I can have you do them as well. And there's some aspect of building his faith, absolutely, that's there. But remember, the disciples aren't sitting in the boat saying, hey, how do I show my faith? They're saying, what's going on here? Who's that guy? Is that really Jesus? If that's really you, then you can do miracles, not just for yourself, but for others. Okay? Now, it's a little harder to not just take the intuitive approach and say, when I run at this, it means I should walk on water or I should identify the struggles in my life. Or let's do David and Goliath for a minute. That I should run at every giant in my life and conquer them by the power of God. It's a little harder to actually look into your Bible and see what's going on really with Goliath making a mockery of God and his purposes and saying that no God can stand against him and how that defies the way that God has been throughout the pages of Scripture leading up to that point, showing that he is above all other gods. That what he says for the, his people governs other cultures too. Right? It's a little harder to keep all of that in mind. So some people, rather than taking the intuitive approach or the spiritualizing approach, when they run into a more difficult passage, which they wouldn't say David and Goliath is a difficult passage because that's super easy to spiritualize. Man, go out and get your five different steps on how to slay the giants in your life. Just in case the first one doesn't work, you need five more smooth stones. Right? Spiritualizing sounds really easy there. Walking on water sounds like a really spiritual journey. Right? They start recognizing other passages, and it's like, you know, what should you, what should you do with passages that talk about being blessings on the head of those who bash the babies upon the rocks? Right? What do you do with that? They just quit. They quit studying that passage and they move on to something else, assuming that there's no value in that passage or that they can't understand it. There's some hard things to understand in the Bible. But most things in the Bible could be understood mostly, but we got to do some work. One of those steps is by asking first what it meant to the original audience. Okay? So, when... David and Goliath was recorded in the pages of Scripture. Did the original audience look at that and say, man, we can all be David? Eh, I don't think they all said we can all be David, conquer the personal giants in our life. They said, we've got a God who defends our country, who fulfills his promises, who protects his people. Okay? We ask what it originally meant to the original audience. And then it's valuable to put it onto paper. In many cases, Putting it on the paper is what helps it stick into our mind. So when we do that, you ask what it meant to the original audience, and then you put it in a sentence in the past tense and refer to the biblical audience. Okay? So on the book of Romans, okay, Romans 6, I preached Romans 6, 1 through 14. Paul wrote Romans 6, 
1 through 14 in order to. And then you fill in the blank. And that is how you are showing that you think you understood what it meant to the original audience. If when you read Romans 6, 1 through 14, your first step is to say, hey, this passage is written so that I put sin to death in my life. You may have the accurate interpretation and application, or you may not, but you have skipped a major step. Paul did not write Romans 6, 1 through 14 to tell you how to conquer sin in your 21st century American life. Paul wrote Romans 6, 1 through 14, first answering the question of whether or not being under grace allowed someone or encouraged someone to sin more. He wrote that so that the Romans church would understand that. So the best way to know that you're practicing the principles of interpreting the Bible according to exegesis rather than eisegesis, inductive study habits instead of deductive, is to say, Paul wrote Romans 12, 1 and 2 in order to show the Romans that, and you fill in the blank. You use past tense and refer to the biblical audience so that you can remind yourself of what was originally written by the author. Okay? So, you guys fill in the blank for me. Matthew wrote Matthew 14, 25 through 31, that account of Jesus walking on the water, in order to... Somebody take a stab at it. Was he testing Jesus? Well... Peter was, but when Matthew wrote Matthew 14, he wasn't testing Jesus. Peter To show that, <laughs> that Jesus had the power to let, that just the look of him and the command of him let Peter walk on the water. Yep. That not only could Peter, not only could Jesus walk on water, but he could, in his miraculous power, allow others to do things similar, right? or to point to the divinity of Christ that in this case also extended to his ability to preserve others and allow others to do supernatural things. By the way, Matthew's gospel written the days of the early church, maybe there's miraculous things happening. Okay. So what about if you say it was written to faithfully record what Jesus did? You're not bringing in what you think, you know, you're kind of guilty of right. reading into it, aren't you? To a degree, we are guilty of reading in. I think this is a, maybe something we want to come back to in another week, but what I'll tell you is even the, the differences in the Gospels show you a slightly different perspective, which is a, I would say, an intentional theologizing of the authors, not just a they are not recording minutes of the ministry of Jesus. Right. So you're saying event A, B, C, and D happened, therefore this means this is what the theme is. Yes, I believe that's what I'm saying. Believe. Well, so even if we did take what you said, right, the mean the intent is just to record what Jesus did, right? And we just stuck with that. Um, then for us reading it, we would 
see who what Jesus did and therefore point to who he is because he was able to do those things. And therefore, I think it would still get back to the very main theological principle that God is all-powerful. Like That's the intent of why it was recorded so that we could see this is what Christ is able to do. Yeah, I mean, it's a true thing. Mm-hmm. But like, Jesus got in the boat and went across the Sea of Galilee. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Right. That just means, does that mean it's an allegory for our journey through right. life? Mm-hmm. That's spiritualizing it. Mm-hmm. Is it meaning that he just got in the boat? Right. Because that yep. was a mode of transportation? Not every detail, and this is something we'll come to with the narratives and interpreting different genres, not every detail of a narrative has a spiritual meaning, okay? Right. And I guess that's my right. point is an understanding authorial intent is not as simple as a one you know, me teaching for 30 minutes. It varies by genre and capturing things by paragraph rather than phrase. Um, and even within the different genre understanding, does the author give us a purpose statement for his writing? John 20, 31, these things I've written to you that you may believe and by believing, you know, John wrote with a very explicit purpose statement um, to provoke or invoke belief. Um, Now, does that mean that when John records uh, that there was evening and there was morning that, you know, that he's trying to get us to understand that God is the one who governs evening and morning? No, not every detail has it. And in this case, many people run into a problem with the parables because most parables have one point, not 14 um, or not as many as there are details in a text. So you, you do give a good corrective there and note a problem which we're trying our best to understand the basic unit of thought and what that author is trying to communicate in that moment. Is this a detail? There were three days. Or is this a detail given with theological meaning intended for the original audience and for us. It's a challenge at times. Um, We run into that most frequently, I would say, today in the book of Acts. Because many people want to read the book of Acts as prescribing things for the church. I read most of the book of Acts as describing things that happened in the early church. Um. Now, there's some principles from what's described, I would say, but the genre changes it, and I, I think frequently we run into that in the book of Acts. Um, so there's some other places we do. Good. Does that help with that, Tom? Yeah, I'm just... Okay. I know. So uh, you said you've labeled bad approaches to studying the Bible as some of these things. Are any of these things, spiritualizing maybe more specifically, ever... Um, ever a good um, interpretive, interpretive method to use in some situations? So here's what I would say. I don't think that, I think you can get to the same outcome generated by these in many cases with an appropriate interpretive journey. You know, a broken clock is still right twice a day. Broken approach can still get you to the right spot from time to time, but that doesn't mean the approach was right. And there I recognize, 
And I think in a few weeks we may do a history of interpretation. Um, the, the method being proposed here is not the only method that Christians have explored today, much less across time. Um, I think of Origen, one of the early church leaders, and his allegorical method for everything. You know, you get in the boat, that's like the journey of life, and it's made out of wood, and that's kind of like the cross. And then there's the water, and that's like the water that cleanses us. And it's like, man, how fanciful and creative can you be? Um, and I would describe that as using my spiritual imagination, not necessarily as making an effort to understand what has been said and intended to them for us. That's the way I would go. Would you, how would you answer your own question? A little bit more though as well. Um, like, so the correct um, interpretive method is what the author intended more so than these other ones. Mm -hmm. um, so when we look at uh, a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament, um, if we were to always just strictly go with, say what Isaiah intended, with the suffering servant, would we get to the full ex extent with how we then now interpret it with Christ? I would tell you that no, here's a big bold statement off the cuff, no biblical author understood the extent of everything they were communicating on the pages of scripture. But now we post-Christ interpret it even more than what they intended. Is that what you're saying? because we interpret the whole in light of the part and with the whole in mind. So I would say that John understood what he was writing, but not the extent of everything that he was writing. He did not understand the way that that could be understood in light of uh, Paul's letters, Peter, Paul's letters, etc. So I'm okay with saying that we have to begin with the author's intent. On that to the holistic of the biblical um, what the whole Bible conveys and not simply what the biblical author conveys but we cannot disregard the original author to get to whatever point we want to um, it, it's a complicated spiral to go back to some of the terminology of last week between original author's intent, biblical understanding, how does this part play in light of the whole, how does what we understand about the whole come from this part, and how do we interplay between those? Because did Matthew understand everything about Christ? No. Okay? He didn't understand what John was going to write in the book of Revelation at that point. Okay. So, should we see Matthew in light of Revelation? Yes, but should we understand what Matthew intended in light of what John says later in Revelation? Eh, it's a little bit different in that. Okay. The way I think I, I think about it is, I like Dr. Kohlberger's <coughs> book, where you have the three components. You have the literary context, mm -hmm. which is what we're talking about, the, the thorough intent, the historical context, and then you have the theology as well, mm -hmm. and that's kind of what helps bridge all those things mm -hmm. together is in light of the other text, kind of like what you're saying. Yeah, I think uh, we're, we're going to get to more on that. 
in the coming weeks, but I think it's a valid thing to bring up at this point. All right, I'm gonna progress through some of the notes pretty quickly because I've given you a lot here and I'm not making quick progress, okay? So steps, ask what it meant to the original audience. Put it in a sentence in the past tense, refer to the biblical audience. Recognize the differences. You don't have to lame all the differences, but you need to recognize that there's differences there. Okay? Identify the theological principle of the text. Okay, let's, uh, let's go over to Joshua 1, 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I've given to you just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give to them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will be, have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Who is the original audience? Not the 21st century person claiming that God is going to give America to us if we just hold to biblical values. That's not the original audience. So to apply this to the United States of America and us claiming this land for Jesus is probably not what was originally in mind. Who's the original audience? It was Hebrews. As they were about to what? They were taking over the land. About to take over the land that was a fulfillment of God's promise to them. Okay? So, what was Joshua 1 recording or intended to convey to the original readers of early Hebrew culture in the land? What were they supposed to take from this reading? That he was giving them the land and wanted them to take it. Okay. And that they were going to prosper. Okay. At least the promises he made, he made those. Yep. That God would fulfill his promises and that they were supposed to faithfully follow him. So in the decade after this was written, a little Hebrew boy reading this should say, oh, we have the land because God fulfilled his promises. And then we read through Joshua, like, hey, they weren't always faithful and things didn't always go well. It's like God fulfills what he says, even when he promises disaster and disaster comes because we don't do what we were supposed to do. Okay? So a little Hebrew boy or girl reading this 20 years after it was written should have understood God gave us this land. God fulfills his promises. We are responsible to follow him as we should. Okay? But isn't this written to the original author or the target is Joshua? It says the Lord said to Joshua. Right. This, is the, this is directed right at him mm -hmm. as opposed to the rest of the 
Hebrews with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he is saying it to Joshua, I would say, as probably as a representative of the people, but um, that he was with and he was going to lead into the land. Um, this is a recording of interaction between God and Joshua. Um, not. If there's a promise, is this a unique promise to Joshua, or is this a, because he says, you and your people will cross. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, is this, Joshua, you need to be strong and courageous. Right. Does that apply to everybody else? Mm-hmm. And I think as you're, you're asking some good questions, Tom that we need to ask in the interpretive journey when we walk through the rest of the book of Joshua. The reason I would say that I'm okay with this being a on behalf of the people and not just Joshua, if you just have enough faith, all the people are going to get there and it's all going to be good, is what happens in the rest of the journey in Joshua. So I'm reading back into Joshua 1 what Joshua 7 shows me happening. Um, so either Joshua lost faith and the people sinned and abandoned the course of the Lord and they faced disaster or that this was a, hey, you as a representative of the people and as the people are by and large faithful, more expected of you as the leader, things are going to go well. Um, I'm reading back into it when I say that because of what I see happen in the pages that follow. Um, it is. Or exegesis in light of the whole context of the book. Uh, yeah, well, but it just makes a difference if you're looking at this versus a larger scope. Mm-hmm. So. And at what point do we have to, you know, the, the question is how big does the context need to be for us to understand meaning? Um, in this case, I would say, all right, if I expand this text to one through seven, then I understand one differently than if I keep the text at one through seven of verses versus chapters. This is bringing outside meaning into the text. Yeah. So if you're using the text as the context, yeah. then you're still... Doing exegesis. Yeah, you're still doing exegesis. You just wouldn't be understanding as thoroughly the context. Um, it wouldn't be eisegesis. Jacob's right on that. Um, it wouldn't be eisegesis unless you were reading into the text what you want it to say or the presupposition that you begin with. It's close. I think of eisegesis as this is like the biblical truth. Now let me find the verses I want to find so that it can fit the truth that I'm trying to say. Instead of I'm reading the word for the truth that it has to say. It's like I have a message, now let me back it up. Instead of God's word in this passage has a message. That's the way I think of it. But I'm, I understand, I think even the words I used is I'm reading into Joshua chapter 1 in light of Joshua chapter 7. Um, I'm interpreting verses 1 through 7 in light of chapters 1 through 7. Um, the original audience of chapter one have chapter seven? Yeah, <laughs> they would. <laughs> like, like how much of it was written out once? Right. And, and remembering all this is one scroll. When we get into the book of Romans, remember it was all written to be read at one time. There's a letter to be written, read to the church at once. Like, you know. Um, so context, particularly with epistles designed to be read publicly, whole thing. Um, I, I'm comfortable with saying we should interpret Joshua 1 in light of Joshua 7. I'm not as comfortable saying we should interpret Joshua 1 in light of Judges 1, different book, 
but it's still a part of the whole of this pages of scripture. Um, we can read and understand in light of that. But uh. I think you start though with where you're at, right? With when you mm -hmm. read this, you're like, okay, it's Joshua. But then as you continue, that your understanding becomes fuller to what is actually being said in light of then the next passage as you continue. So it just builds more and more on top of it. And we get to you know the end of Joshua, and Joshua then turns to the end of the book of Joshua and says, hey. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to follow the Lord as I have by and large followed the Lord as your leader and been prosperous and successful in taking the land by God's blessing? Are you and the passing of me as your leader choose for yourself this day whom you will serve? Are you going to serve the Lord that brought you into this land and made me prosperous in this journey and leading us into this land or not? So you could say that the book of Joshua, if you wanted to, is God writing this to Joshua, and then at the end of the book, Joshua saying, hey, now, your turn, everybody's turn. Um, so also you could say 24 is kind of a, you're reading back from chapter 24 into one if you want to say this is not just written explicitly to Joshua, but to the people. Um, so, but the interpretive challenge of the people getting routed at AI uh, is either because Joshua was unfaithful or there's something else that seems to be going on. All right, recognize the differences. In this case, one leader on behalf of people, all the differences there. Identify the theological principle. So what is the principle of the text in Joshua 1.9? Is that we could say it is that God, you, you can change this in a variety of ways, but God faithfully fulfills his promises. You could use that one uh, as a theological principle that they should have understood that readily translates into our world. God faithfully fulfills his promises, does what he says. You could even use rewards those that diligently seek him. Okay? There is by and large one or limited things that it meant to the original audience. There are only a small handful of legitimate bridging principles to go from what the original audience should have heard and understood to what we today should hear and understand. But there are many applications or a multitude of ways in which a text can be significant. So in our life, we, we, should, we should read this and say, God faithfully fulfills his promises, expecting those that follow him to obey him. Maybe we want to make that our principle, Okay. Well, if that's our principalizing bridge, once we've crossed this little bridge from what they should have understood, God faithfully fulfills his promises, expecting his people to obey him, to we walk across this bridge, God faithfully fulfills his promises, expecting his people to obey him. Well, we can then take avenues that lead us to the home of every promise of God that we can count upon him to faithfully fulfill. We can also walk through every way in which God expects his people to faithfully obey him. That takes us to a lot of different homes, a lot of different walks, and a lot of different paths. So there's not a million different ways to cross the river. There's not a million different things that this meant in its original meaning, but there are a million different ways to faithfully apply having taken a legitimate bridge. There's some other ways that you could bridge this. 
Um, but there's not six or seven, ten, there's not 25 different ways to faithfully bridge. Then you apply it. Okay, steps to read the Bible. Whew, out of time. Let's see. I'm going to take three minutes and try to wrap this up. One, pray. Okay. Two, observe the words and sentences and relationships carefully. Repeated words are important. Contrasts are important. Comparisons, understand the difference in a comparison and a contrast. Or what's being happening in the text. Look at a list. There's cause and effect. There's figures of speech. We've already done figures of speech in English before. There's figures of speech in Hebrew. We need to understand what those figures of speech are. There's conjunctions, but, and, therefore. When you get to therefore, you ask yourself what it's there for, likely in light of the context or whatever is going to come next. And verbs. Verbs are important. I was going to have us walk through either Romans 12, 1 and 2 or Romans 6, 15 to look at what the verbs say. Who's doing the acting in the verbs? Is it God that is doing the acting or us that is doing the acting? Okay. Is it God the one that it's, when we look at it, we say you, so I'll use Romans 6.22, but now you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God. Who is the one that does the acting? Have we set ourselves free? No. Okay. To be one that has been set free means that somebody else has done the acting. That's passive. We have not set ourselves free. Have been set free is a continuous kind of terminology, something that happened in the past with ongoing action. So past perfect, have been set free. Passive, we didn't do it. Past perfect, it happened in the past with ongoing ramifications. Verbs, if you're going to get nothing else other than context matters, if you're going to understand something, it's often by looking at the verb, whether it's active, passive, and the tense. What's past, what's present, what's future? Is it Simple action, or is it an imperative? Those types of things. Look at your verbs. Okay? Ask questions of the text. We're doing observation. Ask questions. Who, what, where, when, why, how? Who was he speaking to? Was it just Joshua? Was it everybody? Why did he note that it was a boat? Why didn't he tell us uh, what it was made of? Ask questions. Be a good student who asks questions. Use your sanctified imagination to ask questions. Okay? And communicate, I would actually say, the text with, about the text with others. Okay. There's a good chance if you have a novel idea about what a passage means and nobody else that you can ever find had that idea that you didn't get the right idea. Every now and then, Martin Luther comes along <laughs> and nails it correctly, pun intended, Okay. But most of the time, your novel ideas about what this passage means that nobody else has ever thought about and put on paper, probably are not correct. Doesn't mean that your application can't be correct because nobody else has ever been called to live it the way that you're called to live it as a parent tomorrow, as an adult tomorrow, as a grandparent tomorrow. Your application can be different. But if you have a meaning that nobody else has ever generated, eh, you better be careful, real careful with a lot of humility. 
You can mark observations. I think one of the best ways to practice this, and we may do it in the future weeks, is to highlight a text, put some space, print it out. I don't like to write all over my Bible like I could on this one, but you could circle every verb and talk about every verb, everything that we're commanded to do, what God has been doing for us, where are the figures of speech in those passages, etc. It's fun sometimes to do it on a print copy, and you can see more and mark up more as you're just playing with the text. So you're welcome to do that with observation. I'm going to wrap up with prayer so that we can cut the video. If you've got questions, I'll answer them, and we'll go get kids as well. God, thank you that you are good, that you are worth studying. God, guide us as we study your word, that we would understand what you intended through the authors that we obey and worship you in light of today. It's your name we pray. Amen.